I don't know if I have anything to add to all of this, truly. It's, um, this, we could just come around the table right now and, and go home filled, right? But then we would be shortchanged because we're in Revelation tonight. And some of us have come to hear Revelation 10 and 11. And boy, howdy, are we going to get it tonight. So um, I had to cut something. We're in like really, really dense part of, uh, of, the, um, of the book. And the thing that I chose to cut was pleasantries. And so we're just jumping right into it. I promise to be as unpleasant as possible this evening. Um, Revelation 10 and 11 is where we're going to be tonight. We tend to think of uh, the climax of a movie or of a book or something like that to be, uh, that's where the meaning of a movie or a book takes place, right? You know, um, right before, the the scene right before it cuts to black and the credits roll. And then that's the scene that you're like, oh yeah, I I recognize. Man, that's what that movie was about or or the book or or something like that. Normally comes towards the end, but in biblical uh, literature, uh, the the way that the biblical authors write, uh, a lot of times the meaning, the significance whether it's um, the five poems of Lamentations or the Gospels themselves, a lot of times the the meaning, the significance actually gets uh, put right in the middle, a bit like a a mountain. You know, it kind of all builds up to a certain point and then there's like this crescendo and then everything kind of flows down the other side once you've reached that top. That's what happens when you get to the smack dab heart of a book. Well, tonight we're in the smack middle of Revelation, and so we're <laughs> like, get ready, because if you've ever wanted somebody to tell you, in, if you've ever thought, I wish somebody would tell me, like, in one sentence, what the book of Revelation is about, congratulations, you're here, you made it, we're all going to be okay, it's coming, um, so that's, what, that's where we're headed tonight, um, and so uh, before we dive into Revelation 10 and 11, I want to pray. And then we want to do just a tiny bit of recapping. It would just take like three or four minutes of recapping where we are in Revelation because it tells a little bit of a story, doesn't it? That uh, Jason has been breathlessly and been amazing. Can we give it up for Jason right now for just leading us through this so breathtakingly? So um, thank you for your faithfulness, man. Um, so we'll recap where we are and then we'll dive in. And so Jesus, living Jesus, who you're here and among us, and you love us, and your thoughts about us outnumber our thoughts towards you, Um, we ask that you would uh, speak. Speak right now. Um, Disarm all of the ways that this text has been used as a weapon against people or to incite fear in people, and we ask that you would speak gospel into our lives tonight and through us into this world. That is not something that any of us can accomplish. That's something we need you to do. And so, Jesus, we ask, come speak, Lord, because your servants are listening. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right, so we'll start easy. Chapter 1 of Revelation, John sees Jesus. Pretty easy. Chapter (laughs) 2, it is. Chapter 2, Jesus addresses seven churches, and by choosing a really symbolic number, he is uh, signaling to everybody that, like, if you follow Jesus, no matter when it is, no matter where it is, you're included in this too, right? We remember this. Chapter 4, 
John gets drawn into God's reality. He gets drawn like behind the curtain. Backstage of the universe is where he's taken and he sees like endless worship, energy, and like it's just amazing. Uh, it's, it's overwhelming. And he sees like this massive throne and everyone's bowing down. And then in chapter five, he, he notices a detail up at the top of the throne. He notices that in the right hand of um, the one of the throne has a, 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 a scroll and it's sealed with seven seals. And we discover in chapter 5, as John weeps and as we process what this scroll is, we discover that it's the lamb, the lamb that's slaughtered and standing. He's the one who can open God's purposes for the world. Um, and then we arrived, of course, in this is where it just starts all hitting the fan and getting really crazy. Chapter 6, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, I don't know. If I'm continuing. Uh, chapter 6 and 7, the lamb begins to open the scroll. He begins to confront everything that's opposing God's purposes in the world. That's what seals do is they lock everything up. And so he's confronting one by one everything that's opposing God's purposes. We all remember this, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and such. And then last week, we got to the point where after all seven seals have been broken, we see there's silence in heaven and the prayers of God begin to rise up like incense before the throne. And then God begins to answer the prayers, all the cries of the human heart, the, the cries uh, for justice, and begins to confront evil in the world. This is chapters 8 and 9, the, the, the trumpets. And then, of course, um, this, of course, is where the imagery just gets... Jason gave us a great framework for it, but if any of you actually read it, uh, like before last week or after last week, it's, it's where it gets really wild, isn't it? You've got like um, locusts with human faces and horses with snake tails. I mean, ah, this is awful. Um, the, the two hooks that we can hang our hats on with this is that um, John is using imagery from the plagues of Egypt and the trumpets of Jericho to, um, to talk about God, what it looks like when God confronts evil in the world. The plagues of Egypt, you remember, of course, the plagues of Egypt were not about God just liking to inflict punishment on people. It's about God siding with the marginalized, siding with those who are suffering and saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to set you free from everything, from the, the powers of darkness. I am going to conquer them and I'm going to make you fully and forever alive and worshipers of me. And then, of course, the book of Joshua, we remember this, of course, the, the, the great fortress, the great city of Jericho the, um, is like standing as like a almost like this archetypal city of um, stands against God's purposes in the world, but it breaks apart. It falls apart. It shatters. When? Before sevenfold trumpet blasts is what happens. And so the stronghold of evil, this will be important by the end of the sermon, the stronghold of evil shatters, it collapses, and the people of God can enjoy their homeland. It's no longer enemy-occupied. It's 
theirs now. Their, their land is truly their, their home now. The promises of the trumpets that we heard last week are twofold. It's God will liberate people, that's the Egyptian plagues, and God will shatter evil, that's the Jericho trumpets. Um, that's what we saw last week. And it is overwhelming. <laughs> so the, when you start looking at all of the, the imagery, it, you, we have to remember that this is like a remix tape is what it is. You know, the kind that you, some, of, some people are like, what's a tape? Um, it's a remix tape is what we've got right here of Egyptian plagues and shofars from Jericho. And it's meant to communicate these things, but it's, it does become a crazy amount of like trippy imagery with like demon locusts. You've, by the end, the last plague is like fourfold angels of death coming and inflicting death on a third of humanity, a third of land and sky and salt water and fresh water find themselves struck by plagues. You've got... I already mentioned the, the, the horses with snake tails. What I didn't mention is they have fire-breathing lion heads. If that wasn't bad enough, it's, it's really, really scary. And then that, uh, it all ended last week in chapter 9, verse 20. It says, the rest of humankind who weren't killed by these plagues didn't change their hearts and lives and turn from their handiwork. They didn't stop worshiping demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that can't see or hear or walk. They didn't turn from their murders, their spells and drugs, their sexual immorality, or their stealing. It's like, can you hear the ache in these verses? Like, what in heaven's name is it going to take to bring repentance to the world? And we've all felt this ache before, if, if we got real. Like, we've had that moment of where we're like, I just keep fighting harder and harder for this, this thing. I keep turning up the volume of intensity and nothing is changing. It might be somebody at work. It might be like that person in your family that it's like that relationship where it's like, oh, I just won't, I keep trying to, maybe it's like this thing in your life, this pattern, and it's like you're trying to white knuckle it and you're like, oh, it won't. In our national landscape, anybody? Like, it's, it seems like every, both sides are like, how can we turn up the intensity? Uh, to, to, to drown out the other. And neither side has changed their mind yet. And it really just like evokes the question. It's, the, the question is like, how do we actually affect change in the world? Like, how do human hearts, even my own, like, how, how do human hearts change is the question. And it's actually, it's not a question that's like... Uh, Detached from the text, this is actually what the text goes on to address. And so buckle up, get ready, here we go. Chapter, and we're right on time, by the way. Uh, I, I work from a manuscript, and so I know we're right on time. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Um, then, I saw, it just helps people to know sometimes. I'm a new guy, and you guys are like, Mr. Bean up there, what's he talking about? It's like, I, I know, I'm with you. Um, chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Then I saw another powerful angel coming down from heaven. He was robed with a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. His feet were like fiery pillars. He held an, an open scroll. Oh, 
he held an open scroll in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders raised their voices. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. And, and all God's people said, what in the world is happening? Let's pause right here for just a second. It's a magisterial moment for sure. Like this angels descending from heaven and reflecting like heaven's power and authority and like even everything we saw in chapter four, it's, it's shining through him. But what, and what's he carrying in his hand? Not a trick question. It's the scroll. He's carrying the scroll. It's the same scroll that John wept over. It's, the, the, it's that same scroll that was such a son of a gun to open up, right? In chapter six and seven, man, that was a brutal couple of chapters. But it's finally, chapter uh, verse eight is actually gonna tell us that it's, it's open now. It's open. It's just, and it's just, it's hard though, because it, it's just little in this angel's hand. It doesn't look like much. Now that it's out of the right hand of the one on high, it just looks measly. It's kind of small, like kind of bite size. You know, it's just kind of this, more, this small little thing. It doesn't look particularly incredible. It doesn't look like it's going to save the world. And this angel actually, um, he seems to share our concern about that, that maybe this scroll isn't going to be able to, you know, do, do what we think it's going to do because um, he actually, uh, this, this measly scroll that's opened by the lamb, that doesn't seem like it's going to do it. So this angel roars like a what? Like a lion. Yeah, he roars like a lion. He says what most of us spend our time thinking. You know what this situation, when we meet that guy at work, that situation, whatever it is, we think, you know, what this situation needs. This situation needs more firepower. That's what it's lacking. We, we need to throw more gas on the fire. This, we need a firmer hand in this situation. Even, bring out the even bigger guns, the strongest arguments that we can marshal. Let's throw that at this. This situation will change with a bombing. That's what's gonna happen. So, okay, this is uh, Firelegs. Fire, that's his name, by the way. Firelegs, it's in the text. Firelegs to HQ. Um, the, the final horsemen, uh, the seals, uh, didn't change anybody's mind with a, a quarter, with one-fourth of humanity being killed. And uh, the death angel in the trumpets, that last one, he wound up killing one-third of humanity, but it uh, hasn't been enough. Uh, what we need is we need the big guns. So you are a go to deploy the seven thunders. We... Uh, <laughs> unleash the seven thunders. Uh, we, we, we do this, don't we? <laughs> That's what this angel's thinking. One quarter hasn't done it. One third hasn't done it. Maybe half the earth needs to die. Maybe two thirds the earth needs to die. That's what this angel seems to think because he lets loose a lion roar and calls for the seven thunders. And then what happens? Heaven responds with a big old, nope, not gonna do it. Nope, that's not what Revelation is about. Despite all of your misconceptions, all the way that it's painted as, uh, nope, that's not how this story goes. It's not about heaven just trying the same old punishment, the same old tricks and, and tr doing the same thing over and over and hoping for different results. No, John, scratch, verse four actually says it explicitly. Scratch that part out. We're not including the seven thunders in this. 
It's time for a change in tactics, John, because that lion roar is not going to change hearts. That lion roar is not going to change the world. Well, what is then is like the question. We continue, verse 5. Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and always, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, and said, the time is up. In the days when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious purpose will be accomplished. The mysterious purpose in his hand is going to be accomplished, fulfilling the good news he gave to his servant, the prophets. Then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the opened scroll from the hand of the angel who stands on the, on the sea and on the land. So what did he do? So I went, of course, that's what you do when heaven tells you. I went to the angel and I told him to give me the scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will make you sick to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I swallowed it, it made my stomach churn. All right, that was a change in tactics, right? And instead of like an airstrike, we've got like a snack time. Uh, heaven, heaven has John take God's plan from this angel and eat it. God's plan to save the world has got to get inside of you. It's going to taste sweet in your mouth. Those are actually the succulent flavors of salvation and morsels of wholeness that you're tasting in your mouth. But it's going to cramp your stomach up too. It's going to be hard in the end before, before it's all said and done. It's, it's, it's a strange sort of thing that happens in a dream. You know, it all seemed well and good. You know, he gave me a book. He gave me a scroll to eat. And I ate it. You know, it, is, it is a vision that John's having. And it's actually, um, this is actually the exact same thing, uh, same way that it, the book of Ezekiel begins. Um, the book of Ezekiel in chapter 2 begins with the would-be priest. He would be a priest if there was still a temple, but it just got destroyed. Uh, Ezekiel is handed a scroll that's got writing on both sides of it, uh, just like this one. And um, he's told to eat it, to get it inside of him. And once it gets inside of him, he's going to be able to tell everybody about it. That's like, what's this scroll about? Here, let me eat it. <clears throat> now I can tell you all about it. That's the rest of the book of Ezekiel, by the way. Uh, the same thing is happening right here. Get this thing inside of you, John. We don't need the lion's firepower to work over the world. What we need is the lamb's scroll to work you over, John. We need, we're in the end game now. After all, verse seven, he says, in the days of the seventh trumpet. That's like right now, he's saying, right now, it, we're like right on the verge of it, of God's purposes being accomplished. They are gonna unfold like right now, without delay. And evidently, the plan of God to save the world works its way into the world by working its way into you, John. Now, what comes next is really important. That's why I skipped the pleasantries, because we have to, we have to engage it. What comes next is really important because 
it's, it, if you re, keep reading, it seems just like the strangest transition. But if you can grasp what is happening right here in the book, in this transition from 10 to 11, you are like on the precipice. You're right there of being able to grasp like the whole of what John's revelation is about. John has eaten the scroll that was in the right hand that was a son of a gun to open. He's eaten the scroll and now he's about to tell us about God's plan to save the world. So end of chapter 10, verse 11, he's, after he's eaten it, I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod. That's the strange transition. Then I was, it's, a, it's actually from the book of Ezekiel, uh, chapters 40 through 48. Uh, he go, gets a measuring rod. This is what Ezekiel does when he's telling people about the contents of the scroll. John's telling us about the con. Okay. Uh, then I was given a measuring rod, which was like a And I was told, get up and measure God's temple, the altar, and those who measure there. But don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out because it has been given to the nations and they will trample the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Verse 3. And I will allow my two witnesses to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing mourning clothes. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to hurt them, fire comes out of their mouths and burns up their enemies. So if anyone wants to hurt them, they have to be killed in this way. They have the power to close up the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with any plague as often as they wish. That's a good party trick, isn't it? Um, When they have finished their witnessing, the beast that comes up from the abyss will make war on them, gain victory over them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city that is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. Well, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem and Sodom and Egypt and Jerusalem. They're not all the same. He's symbolic right here. And for three and a half days, members of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will look at their dead bodies, but they won't let their dead bodies be put in a tomb. Those who live on earth will rejoice over them. They will celebrate and give each other gifts because these two prophets had brought such pain to those who live on earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear came over those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven say to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. Okay, so verse one and two, he eats the scroll and he starts immediately giving us like a picture like Ezekiel gave at the end of his book. He talks about like the temple being measured and it gets pummeled on the outside and it but it's actually protected on the inside is what he says in verses one and two. And this will happen uh, for 42 months, he says. Clear? We got it? Oh, 
Oh, no? Okay, okay. Let, let, me, let me try another way then. Verse three, he continues, and he's coming at it from a different angle. He tells an intricate little story, a, a genius sort of parable is what he actually gives us, and we don't have time. We're not going to go through it exhaustively, but it's really sophisticated. People do like PhDs on these sorts of things, but John is like raiding his verbal warehouse. What kind of words do I have to describe this? And he presents like track after track after track of remixed imagery and stories and language and prophecies from the Old Testament to communicate the contents of the scroll. That's what we're after right here. How is God going to save the world? And so we could say it this way if we wanted to summarize what he does. John eats a scroll like Ezekiel that shows a metaphor from Zechariah sprinkled with Moses and Elijah imagery fulfilling prophecies to Daniel. I told you, and that's not even like all of the sophistication, but that's like just the broad brush, brush strokes of what's happening here. That's a snapshot under the hood. We don't have time to like go into detail. You don't even have to wrap your head around that. You can take a picture of it. It's about to be back up on the screen, but we threw that up there so that we could say it in a little bit plainer English. We could say it this way. John internalizes God's purposes that show the witness of God's people faithfully following lamb-like love to bring about the kingdom of God is what this story is about. And just like we saw in chapter five, no one could open the scroll until we found the lamb until we found love willing to bleed can open the scroll. Now we see that love willing to bleed is actually what is written on the scroll. It's just, it's not just gonna stay with the lamb though. Love willing to bleed is actually going to get into us. It's gotta be embodied in people. And so John tells this story about two witnesses. And it's a Zechariah image, of course, for God's people. And these people, they live and they die faithfully proclaiming truth, right? That's what the story's about. And best I can tell, you can just go ahead and put that up there. Best I can tell, Revelation 11 gives us a stylized thumbnail sketch of the church's task in history is what this is about. You wanna know what the scroll's about? I'll tell you how salvation is gonna work its way into the world. It's gonna do it through the church. For some period of time, verse three, 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, it's all the same symbolic period of time. It's not full, complete time, it's just half of that. It's just some period of time that like the church is going to point to Jesus in word and deed. It's not literally doing the fire coming from the witnesses' mouths is just as symbolic as the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. We're not talking about literal fire or literal swords. We're not, we're not talking about a literal fire breathing any more than we're talking about like a literal monster coming out of a, a literal oceanic black hole filled with evil, the abyss. That's not what the imagery is saying, that the church the church's proclamation of Jesus in the world is powerful. The church's deeds, when you do deeds of love 
and mercy and truth in the world. It is just as miraculous as anything done by Moses and Elijah. What changes the world? What changes the human heart? What saves the world is when the church faithfully witnesses to the self Giving love of the lamb is what happens in this story. Even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, even when the world despises truth, even when loving and doing the right thing brings pain to people, when it feels like hot coals being poured on their heads in the words of Romans, even when forgiveness and mercy seem overpowered on the streets of the great city by hatred and violence, what do we do? We keep on loving when they go, high, when they go low. Yes, when they go low, we go high. We keep on loving. Even when they spread lies and they don't care. Yes, even when we keep on loving. We speak the truth. Even when they kill and they gloat and they boast. Yes, even then what we do is we love. We heal. We serve. We sacrifice. That's what we do. Even when it means our discomfort. Even when it means our embarrassment, our career. Even when it means our witnessing results in us becoming witness unto death. The word is martures in Greek. It's literally the word martyr. Even then, we witness to the self-giving love of Jesus. We are the witnesses, friends, and we love, and we love, and we love. The church shares the life of Jesus even when it costs us to love. We love because that is what changes the world. That is what saves the world. That's what like, changes human human hearts roaring like a lion does not change anything. Loving like the lamb changes everything. Loving when people experience the love of the lamb, it's it changes human hearts. That's actually how this parable ends. I, I left off the final verse of this parable, but notice verse 13. At that hour, there was a great earthquake. We're, this is Jericho. The city's supposed to collapse, right? The great city. And a tenth, a tenth, a tenth of the city fell. And 7,000 people were killed by the earthquake, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to God in heaven. This is the moment when the city when the city's supposed to fall, but instead we're like surprised because we thought the, the entire great city would collapse, but the biggest surprise of all is like only a tithe of it collapses. Only a tenth, a symbolically small amount of it collapses. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good day when you can save nine-tenths of Jericho. That's pretty good. And only 7,000 people die. That's a symbolic, it sounds like a lot, but it's a symbolically small number in 1 Kings 18 where this comes from. The Elijah story is where this comes from. It's the symbolically small number of the remnant. So it's like only a remnant, a tiny little group of people cling to death and darkness until the bitter end and let it consume them. All the rest of them repent. They give glory to God. They, they come into the Lamb's kingdom. They are saved. There's more people included than what we thought. It's amazing. And then they, they, um, the witness, it's amazing because wit, 
the witnesses who carried a cross like Jesus, they accomplish what the plagues of Egypt could not accomplish. That's what we think a lot of times. We think if we just had more power, that would get something changed. But it's carrying a cross in the story that changes things, that softens hearts, that turns people. Hear this. Revelation's witnessing to the fact that it's not a show of strength that changes the world. It's a show of weakness and vulnerability and love that saves the world. The situation doesn't change because somebody was doing some bombing. The situation changes because somebody was willing to do some bleeding. It like, someone's willing to bleed like Jesus, to love even when it costs them everything. That is God's secret plan on the scroll. That is what John's entire vision is wanting us to see. That is revelations, revelation, my friends. That's what the book of Revelation is about. If you want to know how to change the world and what the book of Revelation is about in one sentence, I'll give it to you. Heaven bleeds love into us through Jesus, and Jesus bleeds love into the world through us. That's the way it works. The, the only way that we can love at all is because God is already always, before we, like these kids up on stage, before we know anything about him, he's already loving us. And so what we do, it, like what we're about to do is we come to the table and we fill ourselves up with the love of Jesus and know we rest secure. I am loved forever and always. And then that love gets into us, courses through our veins, and it starts bleeding into the world around us and bringing salvation. And so maybe it's that family member, that coworker, that neighbor, that boss, that ex, whoever it is that you can't stop thinking like, you know what? Nothing is changing. You know what? I, it's just time to flip the switch and let the bombs fall. My, my heart is just telling me if I want things to change, then surely I fight. Revelation says, when the scroll gets into you, if you want things to change, if I want things to change, surely I bleed. Surely I bleed in love. What would it look like for you to bleed in love for that person? We're not talking like being a doormat. We're not talking about staying in an abusive situation, anything. But what would it look like to aggressively pursue their good even when it costs you uh, on a political level. Maybe, um, maybe, I think both sides at this point are saying like, things have not changed because we have not gotten strong enough and we have not gotten ugly enough. Surely we need to fight fire with fire. But I'm just telling you as the church, as the people of God, the second that we depart from love, we are destroying whatever it is that we think that we are fighting for. Whether that is the lives of unborn children, whether that is environmental concerns, whether, that it, whether it's healthcare, whatever it is, if we are not we are not created or called to brutalize the other side. We are called to bleed for the other side in love. And so 
Way back in Revelation 3, and the band, you guys can come on up. Way back in Revelation 3, Jesus um, said to the churches that he stands at the door and he what? He knocks. Because what? He wants to share a meal with us. This is the meal he wants to share with us. This is where we eat. This table, this scroll, the very life of Jesus, broken for the world, poured out in love, that is what we are always being invited to ingest, to take in, and then to bleed into the world for the sake of others. And so Jesus, we ask that you would come as we come to your table, that you would wake us up to your presence, that we could be your people who eat your scroll and become participants and co-heirs with you and and reign with you, and before we do that, we work with you in bringing salvation into this world. Here we are, God. We offer ourselves to you this evening, and we trust that you are going to save the world, and we trust that we get to be a part of it. So grant it right now. Get your love into us a little more deeply right now in these moments. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Brett.